Welcome to the Policy and Planner English podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. We spent the last two episodes looking at how food professionals evaluate different foods to learn what makes them more or less enjoyable. These frameworks can help us understand how to adjust our own diets without losing enjoyment in our food. There are many health-related reasons why we might need to make that adjustment, and one that's been a general concern recently is impaired sense of smell, so we've been using that as a starting example. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, it will help if you start there before listening to this one. In this episode, we're turning the corner to pull out some common themes from those earlier experts that we can apply in our own lives. And for the task of bringing expertise down to practical advice for the rest of us, I'm starting in the obvious place. My name is David Keck. I'm a master sommelier based in Cambridge, Vermont. David says that so nicely. Sommelier? Sommelier. A word that isn't infuriating until you have to put it in a podcast script and listen to yourself try to pronounce it. Infuriating isn't exactly easy to say either. So I'm a beverage professional. I've been studying wine for about 20 years. I pursued my sommelier certifications through the Court of Master Sommeliers Americas starting in 2010 and receiving my Master Sommelier Diploma in 2016, which basically says that I'm part of a very small group of folks who have been obsessive enough about beverage to acquire said certification. It's about 250 of us in the world. He's not being coy when he says this certification is a mark of being obsessive. It's notoriously about being obsessive. David was one of six people in the world to pass the test his year. That's not many people. They wouldn't even be able to field a pickup softball team. Seriously, I just double-checked the rules. Six is when you're required to forfeit. Here's the good news. David learned these things so the rest of us don't have to. Highly skilled tasters of wine have been around at least since ancient Egypt, probably longer, and their first goal is to help everyone else muddle through the selection process. Defining a sommelier, I think, is most helpful when you look at the history of the word, which actually goes back to a French root, which was simply for the servant who brought the Lord's horses around. The craft and the job of the sommelier is very traditionally one of a servant, despite the fact that it is a fancy word in our current society, it actually is intended to refer to somebody who is there to help you find the most delicious beverage and serve it to you at the right temperature in the proper way. It's like having Roy DeRocha from last episode showing up tableside to take you through a quick flavor profile exercise to find the best menu option, which would be great. Every restaurant should introduce a menu whisperer to ensure an optimal dining experience. The thing is, Popular culture often portrays the world of wine appreciation as a bit snooty and a lot opaque. But we may have the whole dynamic backwards. Our grocery aisles are full of products engineered behind the scenes by extremely skillful flavor profilers who are dedicated to locking in customers for a brand. It's the wine world that brings flavor profiling out into the open, with a whole profession dedicated to guiding us through our options to reach a selection that matches our taste and even to help us build from that starting point to discover new options to enjoy. The glorious part about wine is that you can never actually learn everything. It is definitely a craft in the sense that the the longer you study it, the more you realize you have to learn. The more you talk to somebody who's made 60 vintages of Burgundy or something in the Loire Valley, you realize, wow, this is is a, a hugely complex and wonderful subject. This all brings us to the first lesson, Don't let somebody else set your goals. 
Not marketers, not food engineers, not your fad diet enthusiast friends. Yes, definitely do let someone else help with how to reach your goals. But saying a food is good or bad without having a goal in mind, that doesn't mean anything. If your goal is to explore the world of winemaking, then 60 vintages of Burgundy are good by their mere existence. Roy had the example of working on nutritional supplements for patients undergoing cancer treatment. The flavors were way out of balance for the rest of us, but not if your goal is to produce something that tastes good to someone with an impaired sense of smell. Now, the wine world does have some very exacting definitions around what constitutes a good wine, but those definitions have extremely specific goal statements attached, usually around maintaining the character of traditional styles connected to the ecology of a certain grape-growing region. Unless you're managing Appalachians and Provence, is probably not your personal goal. So let's drop external rules about good food and good beverages and start with an honest understanding of what we like. Even if what we like tastes a lot like fruit juice. When we think about where wine has been and wine actually, in, even in the United States, if you think about some historic producers like Behringer White Zinfandel, for example, or any of the Boone's Farm products or um, Matus from Portugal, right? Quick interruption. I did not clarify if he meant the Boone's Farm that makes strawberry daiquiri flavored wine and is currently running a special on blue Hawaiian wine with notes of coconut and ripe blueberry. I still have work to do on my radical acceptance of no food as inherently bad. These are classic and I think easily overlooked when people start to reach a level of quote-unquote sophistication in their wine drinking, but this is a huge cross-section of the population actually really enjoys those beverages, and they actually speak to a lot of what we are looking for in a beverage. I mean, the amount of sugar in those beverages is actually infinitesimally smaller than something like Coca-Cola or Mountain Dew or any of the sweet drinks that people drink on a regular basis. There's this perception, I think, in society that sweet wines have less class, bearing in mind, of course, that some of the most sought after and expensive wines in the world are actually sticky sweet from Sauternes in France or Tokai in Hungary. And these wines were the wines of kings for a very long time. So I think we have this really interesting shifting perspective on wine that is very much skewed by perception more than it is actual taste and what people want to drink. Exploring what we enjoy is the shortest route to the next step, broadening our palates. Staying on the theme of sweeter wines. First, there's a lot of them, in very different styles. And second, they pair well with food. The examples we've been using in previous episodes focused on foods in isolation, but usually we have ingredients in combinations. Dishes, meals, buffets. Trying foods in combination is easier than delving into the nuances of an item on its own. Everyone who gets into wine at some point or another, I think, has one of those aha moments of trying something together and, and realizing that they actually were built to go together in a beautiful way. And that then leads to more exploration and fun with respect to other elements of what we, uh, what we have at the table. One of my first aha moments with food and beverage uh, pairing was drinking some, some delicious port with a really stinky blue cheese. So picking like a Roquefort or something, um, Stilton, something that has a nice blue character and, and then choosing a nice either tawny port or a vintage port and trying them together. I think actually sweet wines in general with super spicy food is great. Finding like a great Thai restaurant or Vietnamese or Indian food. And how would you go about making these matches? Besides trying random combinations, which, by the way, isn't the worst idea. 
In a previous job, I literally filled restaurants with lots of Vermont winemakers, lots of random food samples, and let people wander around trying every combination they could until they found some outstanding ones. But if we wanted to be more disciplined about it. One of the great studies in, in my career that I've very much enjoyed and, and love participating with colleagues is wine pairing and how wine works and, and all beverages actually, how they interact with other elements of the table, other, other food things, right? And that has a lot to do with weight, you know, heavy classic pairings like heavier wines with heavier foods or contrasting pairings where you're taking a lighter, higher acid wine to kind of cut through the richness of food. You know, it's always fun to play around with things like that. But then there's also also the science of all those things and how how we actually perceive things texturally in our mouth when they exist there together and how different chemicals in different foods and in different beverages interact just in a sensory way. Note how we're well into a conversation about wine and nobody has needed to identify a single aroma. We had taste buds for sweet. Now we're talking mouthfeel. No sniffing of bouquets. Not yet. We talk a lot in wine about different flavor profiles and, oh, you know, you read tasting notes all the time and it's like, oh, it smells like strawberries and raspberries and it has this beautiful forest floor character. And obviously all of those smells and characteristics are are very important for people. But I would argue that a lot more of what we do as sommeliers is understanding where people want their wines to sit from a structural perspective, because a lot of those things tie together. And so understanding whether someone likes a richer, fuller bodied, higher alcohol wine from a warmer place versus a leaner, higher acid wine with lower alcohol from a cooler place is going to help us a lot more in understanding what that person enjoys, even more so than understanding what fruit they want to smell when they stick their nose in the glass, although they are related. This brings us back to our first episode with Rowan, going through the range of sensory perceptions that make up our experience of food. Then Roy talked about a system for reducing all those possible perceptions to a few characteristics that tend to elicit the strongest response from consumers. Roy's task was a lot harder than ours might be. He was trying to create universal rules. We're just trying to figure out how to articulate some key characteristics for our own cells. So let's take a look at those wine aromas which really do make up a lot of what we understand to be flavor, and how David might make the list feel less overwhelming. So I think when trying to understand the things that you most enjoy in wine, or, or actually the things that most clearly define a wine, um, I think that the character of fruit is a really important one. And it speaks to a lot of different elements of where that wine was produced and how it was produced. So what I mean by character of fruit is really looking at, is it ripe? Is the fruit tart? Is it stewed? Is it jammy? Is it baked? All of those things tell you a lot about the wine. But also, I think we have a pretty natural understanding of fruit character. We just don't often apply it to wine, right? You know immediately when you bite into an apple if that apple is ripe or tart. And wine is frequently in the same category. Those grapes are either grown in a cool place and have tart high acid character, or they're grown in a really warm place and have more sort of raisinated, riper character. And I think those are good sort of categories to start um, with respect to breaking down your own understanding. If you want to see a structure for simplifying the sensory experience written out, I'll link a book that does it in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. It's a board book with scratch and sniff patches. 
it's not overly sophisticated. So again, the lessons embedded in here are all the different senses that go into flavor experience, then strategies for reducing those to focus in on the elements that matter the most for our own response. Now, did you catch the bit about growing conditions? Those matter. Thinking about wine and remembering a little bit that it's an agricultural product helps a lot with understanding some of the better ways to explore it in your own just enjoyment and and consumption, right? So I think starting with a wine that you enjoy, that you know that you enjoy, and then saying, okay, if grapes are grown in this pace that make a wine that I really enjoy, what are places in the world that have similarities, whether it is temperature and climate wise, or the similar grape varieties, or uh, winemaking techniques? Okay, I, I like Oregon Pinot Noir. You know what? Most of the winemaking technique there came from Burgundy. Have I tried anything from Burgundy? Do I want to drink that? Where else do they grow Cabernet? Okay, I I really like Bordeaux. What about Washington Cabernet? Totally different climate. How is it different? Even if we need to phone a friend to know this level of detail, wine production is still something that remains tied in the popular imagination to the environment and local agricultural practices. Most of our agricultural system went resolutely in the other direction. Developing ways to make, say, a bell pepper taste the same wherever it's produced, whatever the time of year. Some items, like fresh tomatoes, make clear that the trade-off for consistency is often a deeply mediocre eating experience. In health policy, when we talk about food environment, the focus is often on social risk factors that create barriers to accessing nutritious food. We focused on those in season three. But that's just one part of the story. With these wine examples, food environment is literally the environment that produced the food, or more broadly, the context of agricultural policies and practices that have led to what's available for everyday food choices. From everyday choices, dietary patterns emerge and local cuisines evolve. You can see those shifting sands playing out region by region in the wine world, including right here in Vermont. So I think what is most exciting about Vermont right now is that we are tapping into both kind of an international excitement over new and interesting wines, simply by being a fringe area, but also I think the entire ethos behind Vermont wine production, at least in the direction that it's currently moving, is toward organic and biodynamic production. Um, For those unfamiliar with biodynamics, it's basically taking a wholesome approach to an entire ecosystem and viewing it through the lens of uh, treating an entire agricultural setting as a one organism and um, involves a lot of really interesting uh, practices. What we're doing in Vermont is also on in line with a lot of the sort of more interesting regions in the world with respect to producing higher acid, leaner styles, lower alcohol styles of wines, and not to mention benefiting tragically from the fact that global climate change is positively affecting our our climate here, which has always been fringe just simply because of the temperature. So we've got kind of this awesome combination of having wines that speak to a direction international wine is really going, a place that is geared to it from a philosophical perspective, and then also benefiting from the ways in which the world is changing right now. We'll save my grand plans for reinventing cuisine in the face of climate change for a different podcast. The point for today is to appreciate the multifaceted nature of how we arrive at any one set of flavor preferences, and then how those evolve. Once your imagination has been inspired by a glass of wine, or a sniff of truffle, or a sip of grass-fed milk, or whatever catches your fancy, 
there's basically no end to how far you can take that exploration. For me, wine really spoke to, I guess, a combination of having my own intellectual curiosity that is somewhat scatterbrained at times and needing a, a bunch of different topics to keep me excited and interested. I was a musician before going into the wine field and music is wonderful because you can study history and culture and language and actually the, the music itself, which is pretty mathematical. Wine is extremely multidisciplinary with respect to studying agriculture, you're studying history, um, cultural history, and then molecular biology and chemistry and climate and geology and all of these things that really um, tie together beautifully in the study of wine. That brings us to a final key theme, which has been implicit until now. The amount of time any one person will devote to curating their own food experience. David is not the person to ask about being sensible in this regard. Remember, he has a master's certificate in world-class obsession. Roy and Rowan from earlier, also not top of the list for sensible time allocation. Like I said at the beginning, they've gone deep so the rest of us can go shallow. But shallow is different from never diving in at all. Here's one point where everyone can agree. There's no way past the enjoyment factor in food. I sometimes think that smells should only be described in terms of feelings. Smells are all eliciting feelings or little tiny building blocks of feelings instantly before the higher brain knows what's going on. Don't fall into the trap of assuming that you can say to someone, well, you need to do this because this is good for you. And because of that, you should eat this product. You should drink this product. Because what people will do is they'll say, oh, okay, fine. I'll take that medicine. I'll eat more prunes. I'll do whatever you're saying. But then human nature kicks in, and when they go to the store, they're going to want to buy and consume what they like. At the end of the day, you are tasting, hopefully, a very delicious beverage and studying taste profiles and how to better enjoy that beverage. We can learn any number of rational things about nutrition. That knowledge is useless without also finding pleasure in what we eat. It's easy to be reductionist and say that everyone, left to their base instincts for pleasure, will default to what's sweet and fatty, with occasional forays into foods that are too salty. But we know that's not true. If that were true, then we wouldn't be upset by losing our sense of smell. Sweet, fatty, salty, none of those are aromas. Even the food companies accused of exploiting sugar, salt, and fat to hook us on unhealthy diets aren't so simple in their thinking. Roy gave us a briefing on industry research and development in the last episode, and it was not simply add more sugar. So, marrying good health with pleasure calls for a bit of clever strategy. We've outlined elements of that strategy. Setting individual goals, exploring the foods we enjoy to observe how they interact with all our senses, adding some simple flavor structures to help us articulate what we respond to most strongly, and then using that to guide us as we venture into new food territory. And, as with anything else, we need to manage for external factors, like our food environment and the time we have available for this project. That's a lot to work on. We'll look at how some people are tackling this task and bringing deep food knowledge into the health sector on upcoming episodes of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. I'm trying to think of a way to phrase a follow-up that doesn't invite you to dis Vermont wines. Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> I'm invested in a positive perspective on Vermont wine. <laughs> This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.